You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by Emily Griffith Hamilton, who is a chartered accountant and family business advisor based over in Vancouver in Canada. Um, Firstly, Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, Russ. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, The topic of conversation today is going to be based around your book, which you've written, which is called Your Business, Your Family, Their Future. And it focuses on how to ensure a family enterprise can thrive for generations. Um, Before we get into the detail of what's covered within the book, perhaps it'd be a good idea to um, give our audience a bit of an introduction and some background as to how you came to be doing what you're doing today. Ah, sure. Thanks, Russ. Uh, so, uh, my background, uh, actually, my background, I think, rather uh, informs, I guess, or certainly backfills uh, the work that I do today. And the first would be my firsthand experience. I'm, uh, I come from a long line of family business creators and builders, dynamic wealth creators. In the first generation, was my grandfather. And he was Dr. Ballard, and Dr. Ballard uh, came up with the idea for dog food. And it was, he definitely in his time during the Great Depression, dynamic wealth creation, what seems like an obvious thing today, dog food, canned dog food was at the time. Uh, So it was a significant event, certainly in Canadian history. And the next generation was my father, who married uh, one of... Uh, my grandfather's daughters, (laughs) and my father was a creator in uh, media and sport entertainment. He was also a chartered accountant. My father was a chartered accountant. My grandfather, my other side, was also a chartered accountant. And during his professional years, he practiced as a chartered accountant until his early 60s, actually, but on the side built this robust media and sport entertainment business that included uh, ownership of the Vancouver Canucks, which uh, in Canadian terms, being in professional sport, especially hockey in Canada, uh, is is something that puts you in firmly in the media spotlight. In those two generations, I think what stands out for me is that in the first generation, I had a uh, a ringside seat to family business. In the second generation, my with my father, I had a seat at the table. Uh, in the third generation, my I have there were four siblings of my family. I'm the youngest. Us two is the youngest. My brother Arthur and I eventually bought out from the family the interest in the hockey club, and to that we added the first one of the first franchises in Canada of a basketball team from okay. the NBA. Vancouver Grizzlies. And we also built a state-of-the-art arena in order to keep the Vancouver Canucks in Vancouver. So what that means is that by the third generation, I've gone from ringside to at the table to now I'm the decision maker or one Uh of the decision makers. So the evolution in each of those seats in a family business is a very different role. Yeah. Uh, finally, in the fourth generation, I have two children. My husband and I have two children. 
They are 28 and 25, and we are now transitioning or beginning the transition, or we've actually been working on it for a number of years, but they are slowly moving uh, into the family enterprise, uh-huh. but in their own disciplines. They're, uh, we have no more chartered accountants. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the fifth generation, but uh, in the fourth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so right now, so I have two very, uh, two young men that are living purposeful, independent lives, but are still members of the family enterprise. So that's on the sort of the first hand, personal, experiential, of course, a lot of things, a lot of stories, a lot of experiences come out of those generations. I can imagine. On the, yeah, and on the professional level, I am, as you mentioned, a chartered accountant. I'm also a certified conflict resolution coach. I'm also a licensed investment advisor. And I think what you know uh, from listening to your other podcasts and that and from the work that you do, Russ, is that I, I have these designations. I, I work, have worked in all of these areas. But what we do know is that when it comes to family enterprise consulting is that the reasons that people's plans fail is not because of the professional issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we'll get into that later. Uh, so, But when I'm sitting in a family enterprise and if people want to go down the road of their other investments or their financials or the, you know, the quantitative aspects in any way... Mm-hmm you're not going to pull the wool over my eyes. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of up to speed. <laughs> yeah. um, and then finally, on a sort of a practical practicing level, yes, I am a family enterprise advisor, and I'm also a member of different family business advisory boards. So uh, that brings another element of understanding to the process. Yeah, and again, I'd, I'd like to, if we can, have a chat about some um, uh, the um, benefits of advisory boards um, later on in in the show, um, before we go into that, I'm I'm fascinated by the um, story you you mentioned your grandfather effectively um, inventing um, dog food. That, that if I understand the story correctly, was out of a necessity, wasn't it at the time due to sort of the economic um, circumstances at the time? But that's quite an incredible oh, thing to kind of have as a family. Um, history it is you know it's someone had to do it and and it it was somebody in your family it's incredible it and and I think what's really I I completely agree with you I can't answer the funny I've never thought what an interesting way to think of it Russ I've never thought about it with respect to uh out of necessity the 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 family legend or the story that it gets told in my family through the generations is that uh, I remember the house that my grandparents lived in because it was next door to me when I was growing up. Uh-huh. And in the backyard, the veterinary practice was also part of their home. And people would bring their animals in for care. And my grandfather would make this food. My grandfather and my grandmother would make this dog food, wet dog food uh-huh. for these animals to eat. And it and then they eventually found out that people were coming to them just for the dog food because their dogs get so healthy on their dog food. So, uh, yeah, it was just right place, right timing, yeah. that entre- entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, let's get this done. My mother then tells stories about, you know, working in the factory and peeling potatoes and, you know, chopping carrots and all that sort of, all that sort of stuff along yeah. the way. 
And then in that generation, what happened was that in my mother's family, there were four children, one boy and three girls. So in that generation, when it came to succession planning, there was still alive and well the theory of primogeniture, mm-hmm. which is this is passing to the firstborn male. Yeah. So uh, we had in that generation a passing to my uncle and he, uh, which was terrific. And the three daughters in this is during the depression or just after the depression, the three daughters were both uh, given a sum of money. And in those days they were each given a million dollars, which was wow. uh, yeah, astronomical um, and a fancy car. I, I won't go there, but uh, <laughs> uh, so, so a lot, but in, in that way, and another concept that I, I don't talk about as much in, in, my second book that you referred to, but in my first book, it was the start of the building of our family bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, so everyone was, I guess, in a sense, compensated just in different ways. Right. Fantastic. And then but you mentioned as well the um, Canucks, if I pronounce that um, yeah, correctly. Canucks, yeah, Canucks, um, I'm based in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so there might be, um, as I was, I was not hugely aware of um, the, the team, but they are um, a National Hockey League um, franchise, aren't they? Or a team. Uh, which, again, in, in terms of um, a, a business or, or an enterprise to grow up around, it is mm. incredibly interesting, I would imagine, because it's not, uh, as you say, your, your father was a chartered accountant, you're a chartered accountant. But, but the businesses within which you're doing those things are in, incredibly diverse, um, moving from sort of the dog food side into yes. um, media and, and sports um, and building stadiums and things. It's, 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 it's crazy. Yeah, it, it, and I think what you're touching on there too is that we have a, a robust, I would say, family tradition of reformatting. Mm-hmm. The enterprises that we're in, so like you say, dog food can from from veterinary medicine to canned dog food mm-hmm. to uh, media and sport, and and there's a reason that my dad got into the media, and then how that grew, and then how the sport came about. It wasn't so much that when he was you know in his twenties he was thinking he was going to be in media in professional sport. Yeah. That's not how it came about. It was that entrepreneurial spirit that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in his case, what happened was uh, because Vancouver was much smaller, it's or still a small city, of course, but it was much smaller at the time. And my father was in practice as a CA with his father, Griffiths and Griffiths, chartered accountants. And a lot of the deals were being done through their CA firm at the time. And there was one for our number one radio station in Vancouver, uh, which was called CKNW, and it's, of course, still here today. Mm-hmm. And another company was, another family was going to buy the radio station, and they kept coming to my dad to put the deal together. Um, on the first go around, the family backed out at the last minute on purchasing the radio station. The second go around, they backed out again. On the third go around, my dad went, you know, this is an incredible opportunity. (laughs) If you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. Uh, So he and my mother uh, went, bought, I guess, ownership, took ownership of this radio station. And we also had an example of, uh, to finish the deal, he needed 
additional financing. And that involved a loan from the family bank of my grandfather, Dr. Ballard, mm-hmm. um, which was, uh, you know, drafted by lawyers. Everybody in the family was aware of it. All my mother's siblings, everybody signed on. Uh, terms of repayment, it was a formal loan from the family bank uh, rather than a gift from the family bank. So we mm-hmm. had the setting in motion of monies to be recirculated and it, and it has a purpose, um, whether you're building the human intellectual assets of the family or, or financing. So anyways, that, they, that started the, the radio side and then he started piecing together a, a significant operation in Canada um, in media, whether satellite communications, TV stations all across Canada, radio stations and all the major markets across Canada. And the hockey club came about because hockey is a bit like your football, I would say. I'm going to use that comparison. It's huge, isn't it, in Canada? It's huge. This is, we live and, you know, we live and die for our hockey in Canada. It's, 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 part of our backbone and when we have our long dreary winters hockey is what gives us a rallying cry and our local club the Vancouver Canucks uh, was suffering uh, under the current owners it, it was one of the few teams it was the only team actually in the NHL that was also a public company and the then owners had gotten into some financial difficulties and which involved a court case uh, some cooking of the books, um, right. some people going off to jail. And again, the community came to my dad and said, can you help us? Can you help the community? Can you help save, keep the Vancouver Canucks in Vancouver? So my dad went out and put together a syndicate of individuals in the city that could take on a financial investment of that nature. And in the end, uh, you know, not going through all the details, but at the end, our family ended up holding the controlling ownership of the club. And you are absolutely right. It became the fabric of our family. We lived and breathed hockey. When the team won, we were ecstatic. When Uh the team lost, oh, it was painful. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Oh, so yeah, when you have an asset, I think for many family business owners, especially those that really build the businesses, <clears throat> excuse me, the emotionality that comes with that and the emotional connectedness yeah. is very challenging. I completely agree. It, it's um, In the work that I do, it's one of the things that you see um, so commonly in, in family businesses. It, it becomes a member of the family, doesn't it? it it's, um, you know, the, the emotional attachment there is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And... Yes. Fantastic. Um, so obviously you, you have uh, written, um, you mentioned two books there. You, you've written one um, a few years ago and then this one more recently. Um, the title of the book, as we mentioned, was Your Business, Your Family, Their Future. What was it that motivated you to write the book? And I know we're going to cover some of the aspects of it, but broadly, what are you, what, what are you hoping readers to take away from it? Oh. Uh, to answer the question broadly, what am I hoping readers to take away from it? It's hope mm-hmm. and just an understanding that they don't default to selling or to prescriptive solutions because that's what Bob down the road did. 
and yeah. either it worked or didn't work, but that it just opens their eyes to the fundamental core issues of or core topics. I don't want to say issues. That sounds negative. Just the core topics and understandings of creating a successful succession to the next generation. And then because if you're forewarned, forearmed, if you know going into what to expect and how to maneuver some of the predictable problems in the future, then you're more likely going to have a positive experience from the process. The other thing I did in writing them too, I, I, I kind of really want to maybe, as you probably noticed in looking at it, is that one of the interesting discoveries I made uh, many years ago is that there was a piece of research that came out that showed that the average entrepreneur spends 80,000 hours building their business and only six to eight hours on this topic of succession planning. Wow. And uh, yeah, and 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 at the time it caught me for for two reasons. One, I thought when I kind of did the math of that, I thought mm, eighty thousand hours is actually probably pretty low, and that was the first. And the second thing is, I thought I was astounded by the six to eight hours, and yeah. and then yeah, and then going into the research and looking at not only now since about two thousand, we have a lot more information available. Mm-hmm. You know, book format and that on this topic. Mm-hmm. But before that, this process has been largely hijacked is unfair, um, has been largely dominated by accountants and lawyers. Mm-hmm. And when people attend a seminar, one family I worked with came into one meeting and they had like a large grocery bag, one of those cloth grocery bags of something and and they came up to me with this bag and I was kind of excited for a moment thinking it was a bottle of wine or something and oh and I started pulling out these things and 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 they were actually all brochures and they said you know what we thought you of all people might enjoy this we have been attending seminars for the last I don't know 30 or 40 years on this topic mm-hmm. and this is all the stuff we've gathered so I went home that weekend and of course largely again produced by accountants and lawyers. And I went through and I reviewed them all on the weekend. And I thought many of them, I was really excited actually to review the information. And I got into it and I thought, I'd give up too if I had to read this stuff because <laughs> it was so boring and so dull. And they always eventually veered off into structures and yep. tax and legal issues. And and of course, what you and I know today is our plans don't fail because of the work those professionals do, mm-hmm. but in spite of the work that they do. So, yeah. um, so the book that I wrote, I'm intentionally, uh, there's a lot of information there, but it's meant to be a weekend read because yeah. I, I figure if I only have six to eight hours, I'm going to give them less than that and get as much as they can in a useful, easily accessible way. Absolutely. And I, I think the point you make there is is um, a fantastic point. And it's one that's often overlooked. And th- this isn't aimed as a, as a, a criticism of um, lawyers and accountants, but if there's a if there's not a level of understanding around the family dynamics and the Correct. the uniqueness of family business, although the professional advice that's given is entirely correct from a, a logic point of view, yeah. it, it just might not sit in an emotional sense. 
and that's where I think um, yourself and I are um, well placed in order to be able to help unravel that side of things rather than, and it's not contradicting the um, professional oh. um, structure and advice that, that's given. It's just helping to apply it to that family dynamic. And, and that's, I think, the um, one of the biggest elements of, of the work that we do um, that, that can help family businesses. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I call that uh, addressing the family factor. Yes. And, and that's what I look at. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I am one of those accountants. I'm super respectful of everyone and our professionals and the work that they do. Having said that, I believe we get the order of the work backwards, that we tend to start with the professionals and work mm -hmm. backwards. So yeah. I don't, in, in many instances, what I find is the families that I'm working with, the structures are already in place. They've mm -hmm. probably done date freeze at some point. There are trust structures. There are preferred shares. There are common shares. There's all these children are now owners and they're 10 years old. Mm -hmm. and, and I have to unravel that and go, yeah. uh, put that on the shelf. That's okay. But we that's not where you start. You don't yeah. start with the professionals. You, you start with who you are, what you want to achieve. Then you figure out how you're going to make decisions. Some people call that the governance structure. I call mm -hmm. it your family enterprise framework, but just how are you going to make decisions? And then you rise up to, okay, now what structures make sense for us? So it's, it's flipping the model. I flip the model upside down. We still have to have those professional structures. We just don't start there. Uh -huh. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I'm a, a very strong advocate for, for that approach as well. Um, you mentioned in, in the um, description of, of what you cover within um, your book around the option for families to sell the business. That, that it doesn't have to pass from generation to generation. Um, it can be sold. Um, and, and we've seen examples where the business has been sold and the wealth has been used to create new businesses. So that, that's a different yeah. type of, of transition. But where would you recommend that families start in terms of understanding whether selling the business and either, I don't know, setting up a family office or going into new ventures with, with that or just, just parting ways and, and not being in business together um, is the right thing to do versus the, the sort of transition from generation to generation? Right. So, uh, you know, so where to start? I, I look at that when I think there's two, two areas to think about there. One is a quantitative and one's a qualitative because it, when it comes to a business, we are actually talking about something that's more on the quantitative side, analytical. So first is, as, uh, you would understand certainly also as a financial planner expertise, is the financial need mm -hmm. so it you know it depends on the business it depends on your personal such you know the family owner business owners personal financial situation do they need to sell or not so mm -hmm. you definitely have to consider that sometimes it doesn't take a lot of consideration because it's so obvious one yeah. way or the other but if it's not definitely that's certainly where financial planners play an enormously valuable role. Um, the second is understanding uh, the business and industry challenges. And, you know, so if the business has been tailing for a number of years, you know, you have to pay attention to those signals. Mm -hmm. That's practical financial analysis. Yeah. And the same with the 
industry. Maybe it's a dying industry. Um, and then finally is, you know, what we've seen, and, and I'm thinking you've seen also, are uh, the offers that can't be refused, mm-hmm. that make no financial sense whatsoever, but they're so insane that you have to take them on. And that yeah. is, those, those are the cases where people can can reinvent themselves again, if, it, if it's that sort of situation. Um, so those are sort of the easier sides, the quantitative sides. The harder side is the qualitative side. And and the example I'd give there would be, uh, actually in all this, would be my reason for selling out of my ownership interest in the Vancouver Canucks, the NBA franchise, the Vancouver Grizzlies, and our GM place now, Rogers Arena, that we financed and built. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was that uh, with my quantitative hat on and my business hat on, one of the things that you do before you enter into transactions like that, of course, is you create financial projections. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing those financial projections, you factor in some what-if scenarios. What if interest rates go off the charts? What if the Canadian dollar tanks in relationship to the uh, US dollar? Mm-hmm. Uh, so those sort of things. And and we knew from those projections that we could weather a, a, a spike in interest rates. We knew we could weather a drop in the currency, but it would be tough. It would be tight. We'd be tight. But we had a third factor come at us. Mm. And that was a strike in the NHL. Never That's happened nice. before. Could, we could not have, I, in a million years, I couldn't imagine <clears throat> putting that into a financial projection. No. And that was the moment at which watching these three factors looming on our horizon, I could look at the projections with my business hat on and go, okay, the time to sell a business is not when it's declining. It's when it's inclining. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, that's where the qualitative, I had to have the conversation with my brother and my partner who was the face of the organization. And sometimes even still is today, mm-hmm. my brother, Arthur, and I had a meeting with him in the arena, our newly built arena. And I, I, we went in, in the middle of the day, it was all dark in the arena. We went out into the stands, sat in the stands. And I said, look, and I had to have the talk with him. And it was in a very emotional conversation. I didn't want to do it. You're absolutely right. It was a part of who we are. But no one does any themselves or their family any good loving their business to death. Yeah. Um, when I had the conversation with him, I looked at him and he was, he was understandably very sad, sad, emotional. Mm-hmm. And and he looked at me and he said, but, you know, and he kind of, you know, linked back the tears and said, I always dreamed. And he had four children, three boys and one daughter. And he said, I always dreamed one day that my children would work with me here. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, oh, this is so difficult. And he didn't sell at the same time that I did. Okay. Uh, years later, we've had lots of we've had conversations about this and and one of the conversations we had was about how hard the additional difficulty for him in selling was at that point my father had passed away but was in telling my mother 
um, or our mother. And my mother was to yeah, a Canuck forever. She was a resolute hockey fan. She always had her suite in the arena. You know, she was the matriarch. Um, it was, and it, 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 his fear of having that conversation froze him uh, in doing the right, doing that the sensible thing, mm. practical thing. I, I think and that highlights that. as well that the. It's almost a, a very concentrated um, version of the emotional attachment that can come from a, a family business. Yeah. Uh, because in this sense, it's a sports team and, and it's a sport with sports. It is, it's almost religious, isn't it? That they are your team. You can't ever imagine supporting another team. And so, so the, the parallels of that with a family business are, are um, very much there. But, but when they are one and the same thing, and you know, I'm, I don't know um, what the uh, what your your biggest rivals are, um, but it's almost like saying I, I'm not going to support that team. I'm going to support the rivals now, and the the kind of conversations that that can um, lead to can be really really tricky. But it, it sounds as if you you kind of had that very very concentrated situation within your own um, family, and. Absolutely. And I, uh, there have been some interesting things to, you know, reflecting afterwards is that the sale of an emotional asset like that is equivalent to, a, it is a traumatic event in a family. Mm. And when it, for, it, it didn't define me because I didn't work day to day in the business. I was a owner and I wasn't in management. So mm. we had very clear separate roles between ownership and management for my brother it it really defined him it it he was recognized and he was the face of it he was recognized he was brilliant at it he uh the media captured him across canada in a way that really reflected the kind and generous and wonderful human being that he is and when you kind of took that away it's a very uh to this day he still recognized you know, and this was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago as the yeah. face of the Canucks. Wow. So it is, it's a, uh, but what, but the other thing though, too, is that something I should also maybe point out too, maybe this is a good error where my mind is going is that one of the things our family did really well was really make that clear distinction between ownership and management. Mm-hmm. As we know, many family businesses grow. Uh, it, you know, the business builder is both is everything. It's a family leader. Yeah. Is the business leader? Is the owner? Is the manager? And my dad, when he built the media and sport organization, public company, he never worked in any of the organizations. So from a very early age, I learned that there's a very different role and essential role of engaged ownership mm-hmm. versus management. So, so two things. So I, I understood my role as an owner uh, and I understand that the role of management is different. The next thing is that we also have a family tradition of reformatting, which is not a failed succession. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned at the beginning, going from dog food to media and sport, when uh, I sold my interest out of the uh, 
on the sports side, sport and entertainment side, I reformatted into the financial markets and real estate, our, our family office. So, and I'm watching where our boys are, my boys are going thinking, I, I can already see the next reformat coming down the road to a certain mm-hmm. extent. So uh, reformatting is also, a, it's not a failed succession. It's just a, like you said, you sell the business and, you know, what do you do next? You still have a family enterprise yeah. to manage. Selling the business doesn't make the family factor issues go away. Completely, yeah. And it's almost becoming a business family rather than a family business, isn't it? The, the family business is an entity in itself, but a business family just means that you, you know, Correct. it doesn't necessarily matter whether it is dog food and, and sports or, or media or, or um, accounting. It, it's um, the the um, dynamic is is still there. Correct. I I hundred percent agree, and it's a it's a family value actually. A, it's you know one of the uh, one of the foundation blocks of our family. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So, if mm-hmm. if we've assumed that um, we've looked at those um, factors around whether it's right to sell or not, and a decision has been made not to sell the business, but but rather to retain ownership within the family and look for that to be passed down to the next generation. We mentioned earlier that a lot of those transitions tend to fail. Mm-hmm. In, in your experience, what are the sort of core reasons behind why so many of these transitions fail? Because there are stats to back this up. Yeah, um, absolutely. Some, some of them are, are you know, based on specific areas, but generally speaking, it's accepted that um, uh, succession is a, a, a point at which a um, family business can um, struggle and, and in fact fail. Um, why do you see the reasons being for that? Well, uh, sort of back, I, backing up just a second. So the, you're right on that research. So one of the great pieces of research came out in 2000 and it showed that uh, 70% of succession plans fail in each generation. So that means that if in the first generation, 10 families are doing this work, seven fail, leave three in the second generation, another mm-hmm. 70% fail, that leaves one in the yeah. third generation. Mm. Yeah, giving rise to the North American proverb, at least, of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three mm-hmm. generations. But interestingly, that proverb is globally recognized with lines like uh, barn stall to barn stall, clog mm-hmm. to clog, rice Clogged paddy to rice clog. paddy. So, so what that tells us is it doesn't have anything to do with uh, our tax structures, our inheritance our inheritance taxes it doesn't have to do with old world cultures or new world cultures there's something else going on uh the next is that the same research defined failure so that's what i was referring to just a few moments ago Mm. and that's that uh if a family decides to give all their uh, money to charity but for philanthropic purposes, that's not a failed transition. Um, If a family reformats the family business, like we have done in our family generation after generation, that's not a failed transition. Um, So then it comes down to, well, what's the cause of the failures? And the same research cited that 60% failed due to a breakdown in communication and trust within the family. 25% 25% because the heirs are unprepared, or I say they're uh, not prepared for their future potential roles and responsibilities. 
12% because the family lacks a shared, they, I think in their research, they say mission. I sometimes use the word vision. Yeah. And finally, it, back to our professionals, only 3% fail because of the work of our professionals. So mm. what that tells us is that our plans don't fail because of the work of our professionals, but yeah. in spite of the work of our professionals. Mm-hmm. And and further, the words that they, the language that they use around the failures, they talk about failures occurring because of miscommunication, inattention, family feuding, foolish expenditures. So in other words, all things that lie within the control of the family, mm-hmm. they're involuntary losses of the financial wealth or the family business or whatever format it takes due to factors that lie within the family itself. Mm-hmm. So if we, it, absolutely, and if we go back to um, what we were talking about with um, you and your brother making that decision, we could see at that point the conversations that were needed to be had were really difficult conversations. They, they were, were tough for, for you to go and see um, your brother to talk about it, and, and for uh, it sounds as if you, your brother found the conversation with your mother a difficult one but because obviously the emotional links as well. But but that comes down that the reason you were able to get through to that is because you would have had a high level of communication and trust within um, your family. That's not always present, is it? it, it there can be lots of um, challenges, shall we say, in terms of effective communication and connection forums, places where the, that sort of communication should happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I would agree with that. And, and I would find... Generally speaking, what I've discovered is that's often because families are either reading or learning or hearing about this stuff, and they're thinking we need to have a conversation, and they don't know where to start the conversation. That's one thing. And then the other thing is that if they leave it too long, there are many assumptions that have been made by family members that are leading to unmanaged expectations. Mm -hmm. So one of the very things I'm super keen about and that worked have has always worked really well with my brother and I, for instance, is that we start the conversation with who we are and and that's our shared values. Mm -hmm. So that's when I talk about things like dynamic wealth creation, um, hardworking, thoughtful, empathetic, whatever family is. So when I'm when I'm with families, that's where we usually that's the foundation of the model is is a family's values. There are no right or wrong values. So mm-hmm. it's a conversation families can start not talking about money, but talking about who we are, what do we believe as a group. Um, and then the next is the shared vision. And when it came to the shared vision, I I think I mentioned that when my dad and mother went into the acquisition of the Vancouver Canucks, the plan or the 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 idea I grew up with at the family dinner and later board table was uh, the Canucks had to stay in Vancouver. That Mm -hmm. was our priority. That's why we did this. It was a public company. It didn't make money for a number of years. Uh, It was a zero budget organization. In many years, we had to finance it personally as a family. So, um, but it was our focus to keep it for the community of Vancouver. So, that was so the league got to a point where we had to build a new arena 
And my at that time, when we took ownership, my brother and I split off from the family from our other two our two older siblings. Uh, part of that sort of unwinding and split apart uh, occurred because my father approved it. He was also in declining health, and and everyone knew he was in declining health. It right. was it was quite evident, and but he was he accepted or he was willing or supported the pulling apart because he knew my brother and I had the, the same shared values. We worked well as a team. We trusted each other, and we had the same end goal. The what we we were more than willing to risk and lose everything as long as the Vancouver Canucks stayed in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And and we could take that risk, or I could take that risk, for instance, because I had already built a, a separate career from the family. So mm-hmm. I could stand independently, or I was standing independently on my own two feet, um, but I could also lend my earned voice to the family ownership side of the, the hockey club. So mm-hmm. where do you start the conversation? Please don't start it talking about money. Yeah. Start it talking about <laughs> who you are and what you want to achieve. And, and there, there are no wrong answers. I, I, I have these conversations with families and I, I'm always leave inspired by what family members say. It's fascinating. Mm. Wonderful. And it can often be the first time that they've actually said it in a a kind of an open forum as well, can't it? Uh, We've had similar circumstances where people have gone, you've never said that before. I have yet to have a situation where it's been discussed. Mm. Uh, it, in every situation, it's been the first time, especially, you're right, as a group like that. And I think part is that part of that is that we're, we're I'm, so I think about this stuff, Russ, and, and, uh, and I wonder if sometimes it's because we live in a world where we, most of our education systems really valued answering quickly. Mm-hmm. So we just, we make decisions on the fly and there are many decisions that we make every day that are automatic. Otherwise we'd, we'd exhaust ourselves, right? Yeah. Eat in the morning and you know, all those sort of things. Uh-huh. But then when it comes to our other decisions, we don't often give a lot of thought as to why we make the decision. They're, they're rather instinctual, it seems. But when we really peel back the layers and we think about, you know, your, your decisions are based on something. And if a family can find a way to agree on something that they're decisions will be based upon, mm-hmm. which is why I talk about what your values are and what you want to achieve as a group. Then when the decision-making occurs and they align up with your with a family's values and vision, who they are and what they want to achieve, then there's greater likelihood for less conflict around accepting those decisions. Yeah. Everybody's on the same page. Absolutely. And, and um, you, you talk about shared values and, and shared vision. And it, it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that family members who have grown up in a, a relatively similar env- environment will find it easier to agree on shared values than perhaps people who've grown up in completely different um, neighbourhoods and, and family backgrounds. Because um, a, a shared value, you say hard working was one of the, the shared values that you had within um, your family. Through your, your family growing up in the environment that it grew up in, you will have a an understanding of what that means to you rather than, um, for example, um, I could think that, you know, working three days a week is working hard and your expectation could be, well, actually it should be five days or six days or eight days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 
having those conversations as a family shouldn't necessarily be, as you say, something that creates conflict because the environments within within which you've grown up um, are broadly similar. A hundred percent agree. And I think what you touch on there too, when the family's still closely related, like first and second generation parents and children, uh, the other thing you're getting there is the unspoken role modeling. Mm -hmm. So when there's also an alignment, uh, so now we talk about core and aspirational values. So who we really are, not who we want to be. So if hard work, just as you're an example, is three days a week or seven days a week, it's it's, you know, what you see can be what what you get. Now, our kids can surprise us. Our children can surprise us. That's for certain. But, uh, you know, role modeling is uh, very important there. When yeah. a family gets further generationally, so you were right, they tend to be, you know, they're not going to necessarily be growing up under the same roof by the third and fourth generation. Mm-hmm. What I tend to find then is that the values get get streamlined into sort of a really core handful set, whatever they might be. They could be honesty, you know, well, integrity, I think aligns up up honesty, Mm. but whatever they are, they, they get fewer so that it's easier for future generations when they gather, ideally, you know, once a year to just go over what the values of the family enterprise are. Yeah. Um, the simpler the better I guess and and I think one of the important things or or, um, one of the things that we look um, to do when we're talking to you said when you get to sort of cousin um, consortium stage of of business is when you're talking about the values is also looking at or discussing the behaviors that represent those values because mm-hmm. honesty to one person could mean something different to honesty to another. And as you disperse um, the, the family in, in terms of the number of, of people involved, that has the propensity to, to perhaps dilute what that might mean. And so by discussing what um, actions and behaviours represent the values of the business helps to align people on that as well. I would, I 100% agree. And and I would add to that, that, that one of the things that families do, especially in those later generations, where it it needs sort of more defining and clarity, is that families take time to explain uh, the policies that they have, or Mm -hmm. the decisions that they've made, or the, you know, how they operate, and how they relate to the values. Mm -hmm. Because you were, I couldn't agree more that one word, to mean can mean something entirely different to you. So, so what we're also doing, what is also happening through all this is not as it's, it's certainly it's sort of the academic and the practical side of, okay, this is how we made the decision and it lines up and it agrees, but it also gives family a time to practice communicating mm-hmm. and understanding and getting on the same page and working together and you know, it's as much about the process of doing all this work as it is about, or I wouldn't say all this work, as much about the process as it is about the outcome. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. Um, <clears throat> so if we look at some of the um, very basic ways in which families can start to um, create the forums for um helping with communication, helping with, with building trust. We've obviously mentioned about 
um, having a discussion around shared values and shared vision. Once that's in place, where do they go with that? Because it, it's it's all very well saying, yeah, we've agreed we want to keep the ownership within the family, for example, and this is the value set. Um, you then again, you don't jump straight into money because it that, no. that tends to. <laughs> and we've done that bit right. Let's get on to money. It, it, there's a, it, there's these things that can be done that that can bridge that to to make it all um, far more streamlined, isn't there? Yeah, I and and I think that uh, when I think about that, it comes to uh, first understanding that there's three components to to the family enterprise. Just so we get that clarity there. And I think of it as an equation. Mm-hmm. So I see a family enterprise is equal to the family factor plus family business or family office ownership plus family business or family office management. Uh, and then in each of those areas, there's some really core things that need to happen there. And in the family factor, it's having family meetings and, and those conversations that are happening that start with the the shared values and shared vision um, uh, and and understanding how important that oh so, sorry on the certainly how important the shared vision is but uh, understanding too sorry that when you go into a shared vision conversation I have yet to work with a family uh, even my own family that you land on a shared vision right away yeah like in a first meeting right away Mm -hmm. it that would be a bit to that would be similar to asking a 14 year old what their passion is yeah now you know not many people are like me that wrote an essay in grade nine saying she wanted to be a ca when she grew up i know that's (laughs) weird so uh, (laughs) no comment (laughs) um but having said that uh you know most most of us spend a life kind of exploring being curious until we land on that thing that really excites us the same thing for families it's about the process and having the conversation so they start small but it's very important to get everyone pulling in the same direction and it's a bit like a game of tug of war Mm -hmm. so back to my example with my family you had my brother and i uh, we were pulling as hard as we could in the same direction and by doing that what really was the seemingly impossible became possible. And history is uh, full of examples of, you know, the man on the moon, mm-hmm. uh, the Berlin wall, apartheid, these things that if, who imagined, you know, have come down or ended and wonderfully so, but that took everyone pulling in the same direction. Yeah. On the flip side, without it, if you don't have everyone pulling in the same direction, then that game of tug of war can end up in the mud. Mm. And an example there would be um, very kindly, my two older older siblings and my mother, when my father passed, the media enterprise aspect of the family enterprise moved into their hands. And there, there were no good or bad people there at all mm-hmm. but i there were three individuals my two older siblings and my mother who had different core values and different visions of where they wanted the future to go and as a result they were pulling against each other and it ended up with a very public display in canada 
with uh, for one example was a Financial Post magazine had a cover with my dad on it and who had passed and my oldest brother a picture of him and the headline of the Financial Post magazine was uh, Griffith's Family Saga Lines of Descent. Wow. Uh, and so that's, you know, it was sad. It was, yeah. it was a very difficult time. It was a painful time. And, you know, people love the stories of uh, family issues. Uh, but th- there were no, I, they did, nobody did anything wrong. There was nothing right. bad. There was nothing. Uh, they were just pulling in different directions. Mm. And that's what happened. So, uh, and I think that of, makes a, a very valid point. And it, this seems a, a, an overly obvious statement, but uh, we come across not in in um, the degree of scale of, of um, what you've just described, but a shared vision, it, it needs to be a shared vision. It, it's not someone else's vision that everybody goes, oh, all right, then that, that's okay. Um, for everybody to be truly pulling in the right direction, because otherwise it, it's it's not strong enough. Yeah. And, and interesting to it, I find sometimes, especially if we're talking, let's say a second generation that grew up around the business, but not in the business at mm-hmm. all, uh, is that sometimes the default answer might be you're looking for a shared uh, vision for the business, but we're talking about a family enterprise here and the three, right. The three elements, the family mm-hmm. and management and I quite often find is that the rallying cry often first comes from a shared vision for the family factor. And it often has something to do with unity uh, and family connectedness and, mm-hmm. and feeling of the pride of belonging to something bigger than themselves. So it, it, it gets us out of thinking about, for argument's sake, so the money or the business, but but why are we here? If we have the, it's a bit like that Simon Sinek, if we have the Simon Sinek why, mm-hmm. then when when there are bumps on the journey, and there will be bumps because there are bumps, just as a business builder knows building their business, there are bumps along the way. Mm-hmm. There are bumps along the way in this, but if if that why is strong enough, then it stands a greater likelihood of you know making it out the several generations. Absolutely. Yeah, completely agree. Um, I get that there, there is a chapter in your book that's dedicated to um, the elephant in the room. Um, we, we've mentioned one of them uh, already in terms of the financial sides of things. Um, what are some of the other sort of common taboo subjects that you've come across in your work and perhaps in your own, own family? Yeah, it, it's funny. The elephant in the room, I, I really have to start by sharing that title came about from a a speech or whatever that I was delivering in London and I delivered a uh an address involving family brand and family reputation and at the end of that one of the guests in the audience stood up and asked a question about how do you deal with the elephant in the room and (laughs) it's the it's the it was the first time and I'm I'm sure it won't be the last time that I stood there like a deer in the headlights looking at the <laughs> I I there are so many ways I can I have so many questions before I can answer that question so it really got me thinking about it and because it means so many different things 
to so many different people and so many family enterprises. What I will say right up front, though, is that it's called the elephant in the room and not the mouse. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows it's there. You can't avoid it. If you keep avoiding it, it can morph into an alligator. So yeah, yeah, got (laughs) it. You have to find a way. Yeah. Um, So when we talk about, you know, some specific examples, one could easily be, and we've kind of referenced already that uh, talking about money. I had an experience with one family where there were uh, three siblings and their spouses, and the siblings were aged 50 to 60 or 55 to 65 in there. And each of them had three children and their children, now the cousin consortium were, I want to say ages 20 to 35. And they were wondering about how they talk about the family business or the family enterprise with their children. And so these weren't little children, young children. And two of the uh, of the six adults in the room, three, three siblings, three spouses, uh, four of the six, uh, so two of the children and their spouses worked in the business. The other right. couple didn't work in the business. Uh-huh. So the children, the cousins had really grown up, up around this these family businesses. They they knew they had assets. They knew they had buildings. They like they weren't in the dark on uh-huh. any of this stuff. So I asked what I thought was a simple question: Was do you talk about money? One individual, a brother-in-law, literally, he was seated, we were in a boardroom, he was in the seat next to mine, literally jumped out of his seat, now I'm, I'm five foot two, and towering over me, started screaming at me. Wow. Why would we do that? Talking about money would only destroy this family's hard work ethic. Grandpa was all about hard work. He, I just... I think it may, may have been the only time other than when I was in the military, it may have been the only time that I've ever really been yelled at. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually he calmed down and he sat down and, and I had a, a partner with me who kind of jumped in because I was, my brain cells were rattling around at that moment. And, and uh, it occurred to me that that's not the best question to ask. Right. And, so I encourage families when they want to get to that point is you talk about the purpose of money. Mm-hmm. What's the purpose of money? And that's yep. where we get into conversations about what are the real assets in the family? Mm-hmm. So we talk about the financial, but the real assets are the human and intellectual. It's the family members themselves, their emotional and physical well-being, and the intellectual assets. So then it reframes what the purpose. So so talking about money. So if we change that to talk about the purpose of money. Yeah. That's a great, I, that, that's a, a really um, a good way of, of um, articulating it because money in itself is, I mean, away from family business, it can be something that, that people find difficult to talk about. I see that in my day to day work with the, the financial planning side, um, but, but it means so many different things to so many different people. And the, the purpose of it is such more, it's much more tangible thing to focus on because you're, you're taking away the, almost the amount of dollars, aren't you? It, it doesn't matter whether it's $10 or a million dollars. It's the purpose of it has to be um, what's focused on. And, and, and I've had other families ask me, do, do I need to know 
Do I need to see equivalently their, you know, financial records? Do I need to know how much money they have basically? And I, and I will say, I never, I don't talk, I don't, I never talk about the amount. It's a, it's a money is a resource. It flows in and it flows out. Like you say, it doesn't matter if you've got a hundred dollars or a hundred million, it flows. You get to determine what you turn off and turn on. And, and when it comes to values, then we can start to split apart and go money is not your hard work ethic. Money is not your integrity. Money is not, it's not a value. It's not your family value. It's just a resource you need Mm -hmm. to manage. Yeah. Um, So, uh, so that's, you know, that's, that can be, you know, a taboo topic in other families. Um, Sometimes it's not a topic and it's a person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, I, I might, or some families might see them as a bully at the table. Mm -hmm. And, and then that's kind of peeling it apart and going, if we know who we are, what we want to achieve, and there's somebody at the table who can't, for argument's sakes, play nicely with everyone else, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean they're not welcome to Sunday dinner. It just means that perhaps their voice isn't one that's going to work to move the family enterprise forward generationally. Yeah. Uh, a key topic I really try to stress for families and will eliminate a lot of problems is a topic around earning a voice. Mm-hmm. If all, when families understand that quality voices make quality decisions, then we understand that earning a voice is really key to have at the decision-making tables. Yeah, completely. So, so picking up on that, how you mentioned that earlier on when you were having the, the conversations within your um, your own family, you said using my own voice to to um, put your position. Um, you don't have to use your your own ex- experience, but, but how was that voice earned, or how would you suggest people earn that voice? Because it, again, it's it's quite a common um, subject matter as to when people should be involved in these discussions and at what level. And um, I think it's a really interesting subject. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, there's a, a few things you touched on there, Russ, and really great points. The uh, the first is the qualities of an earned voice will be different in every family. That's one of the conversations a family has. Sometimes a family leader starts it. Uh-huh. Uh, and, de- you know, it all depends on the, right, on the age of the family members. But some of the traits families look for are things like earning the respect of the family. Uh, these are the qualitative traits, earning the respect of the family, being able to disagree without arguing, mm-hmm. uh, being able to admit when they're wrong, being able to put the family before themselves. Um, I'm trying to think of some others commonly. Uh, yeah, some will say being able to stand financially independent of the family, not, mm-hmm. you know, being dependent. Yep. Uh, and, and then when it comes to, at, at, so, and earning a voice can be different in the three different systems. So, you know, in the family factor, you might look for people who uh, uh, family members trust that they can have a confidential conversation with and really know that the person they're dealing with has their back and will support them on their journey to leading a purposeful, independent life. 
on the ownership side, you might be looking for people that have special skills, excuse me, with respect to the industry that the business is in or uh, long-term thinking or other investments on the management side, of course, uh, or sorry, ownership too, maybe mergers and acquisitions. People have expertise in that area. Um, and of course, management uh-huh. is typical of, of the family business. So there's sort of the qualitative in each aspect, and then there's the specific to make the decisions. Um, uh, yeah, so did that answer that question? Yeah, sorry, it Russ? did. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, and it, it's interesting talking about the um, elephant in a room. Uh, a colleague of mine um, called Nick um, carries an, a little elephant around in his pocket. And when he's working with families and he knows there's an elephant in the room, he just brings it out and puts it on the table. Oh. And <laughs> people are like, what, what's going on here? And he's going, well, there's, there's clearly an elephant in the room. Uh, oh my it, it helps to diffuse it. it it's really fascinating. It, it's, it's, I, I think it's brilliant. I, it, I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm smiling because I'm just imagining taking a little elephant out and like, and of course this, I wouldn't do this because I think this would be uh, too confrontational, but kind of putting it in front of the person. Yes. And I'm sorry, that's why I wouldn't, I would not do that because here's something else I've discovered that for instance, in one family I worked with, there was an individual who, so this is where, you know, maybe someone appears to be a bully to me, but not to someone else. So it's sort of understanding one, how a family operates because, you know, I, I come from a family where, uh, there was no dissension. There was no conflict. There was no yelling, but we're normal people. We all had different opinions and points of view. They were just under the surface. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I dated a fellow in university where they would get quite heated conversations at their family dinner table, kind of rising and falling every few minutes. And at the end of my first family meal with them, I was exhausted. (laughs) But for them, that was their culture. There was no, they all loved each other. There was no one took anything away from the conversations. There were no hurt feelings. And in fact, if they behaved like my family or I behaved like, or our family behaved like their family, that would be odd. Mm. That would, that would mean that was something wrong. Yeah. Um, so, so in this one family, there's one individual who I can remember being in a meeting and the family, this is second generation and the first generation, one of the family leaders said something that the person challenged them on right away. And it was something about going through this process. And, and I think the, the family leader said, well, maybe we should just, you know, basically just sell everything. And the, uh, the, but didn't say it quite that bluntly, but it, mm-hmm. I heard it. And I think our meeting was maybe at hour six at that point. And I was, you know, tired by that time and thought, oh, well, okay. What's, what's happening here in my mind, mm. this other family member jumped in and said, basically asked the question, like, what are we doing here? And what are you saying? And what do you mean? And, and it caught me as being quite a confrontational pushback, mm-hmm. but in hindsight, in you know, reflecting after that meeting, I thought, wow, this is exactly what everyone at the table wanted to say, but no one wanted to say. Mm-hmm. So why they might seem at like the bully on the surface, they're actually the truth teller. Yeah. They're the one going, they're 
we have to admire them for having the courage to stand up and go, why did you say that? Mm. And call on the spot and deal with it. So sort of reflection in time and sometimes the bully isn't the bully. Yeah. They're not the troublemaker. But if we have an earning a voice policy, then at least we can deal with the ones that really are uh, offside and derailing the whole process. Mm. And that again comes back to um, the values and, and vision, doesn't it? it that they're linked. There, there's a reason that these things are all sort of tie in together. Um, it's because it's very easy to come back and go, well, hang on, that's not how we do things here. Or actually, we understand that that is how we do things here. Um, but, but having those conversations and having the trust and communication in place, um, as you say, that, that accounts for 60% of yeah. um, the failures in transition. So these methods that we're talking about now are designed to help um, alleviate some all of that 60%. Yeah. And and I think I think sometimes, too, where families get lost in this process or, or get frightened by the process, perhaps, mm-hmm. is a fear of conflict. Yeah. And and I think rather like I did when I was studying conflict resolution and that that I can remember in the, the very, you know, first level course, uh, the question was asked, what do you think conflict is? And of course, my brain went to anger, loud, scary, toxic, just all these things. Mm-hmm. And you know, they go around the room and it seemed no one else had the same thoughts as me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else got the right answer was, it's just a difference of opinion. Uh-huh. So if we have a difference of opinion and we can share our opinion in a way that works for that family dynamic, and we know that the voices at the table are quality voices, and mm-hmm. we really want to listen to the different opinions because they've earned that different opinion, then it's not so scary. Yeah. And that's the first thing. And then the second thing is in the communication is that if this is the first time a family is doing this work, there will, like, as I mentioned earlier, there will likely be points at which a family member or two or three or whatever come undone a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but a really great facilitator will still hold the space for everyone to be amazing and will be able to help the person sometimes actually, well, first, not let that occur if it's too early in the process. Yeah. Once there's enough trust built up, it's not, I don't, I will let a family carefully experience it Mm -hmm. so that uh they know that they can survive and they can do this on their own because my role always is as a facilitator is to get out i fundamentally believe that if a family can build a business a thriving business they can do this work they're often just looking for a roadmap Uh and my goal is to get in figure out who they are what they help you know, just work with them to figure out so they figure out who they want want to achieve get them on course and, and i'm out okay I, yeah completely agree and and that um brings me on to my next question actually which is and we may come across as a little biased here because it's obviously something that we we both do but it is important for families to know that there is help out there for them and we, we mentioned earlier about the advice that's traditionally sought in, in order to resolve some of these things is is a of a technical aspect it's the structural side the legal and accounting side of things 
but there are people out there that can help with the sort of more emotional and, and family dynamic side of it. What would you say the key skills and attributes that families should look for in their advisors? And, and again, earlier on, um, you mentioned advisory boards and, and utilizing those. Perhaps we can cover those off in the, in the same at the same time. Okay, so I, I sort of the three fundamental skills I'd say for a family enterprise advisor would be uh, active listening. And I know that I don't know about you there, uh, Russ, in the UK, and I know that here it can be a bit of a buzzword. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's to me active listening is all those things we know. It's you know eye contact, uh, asking questions, paraphrasing. And and it's suspension of judgment. So uh, I'm there to be curious uh, and not to be judgmental. And fortunately, uh, I really love the work that I do. So and I'm always interested in other people. So it's for me, it's it's just easy to suspend judgment. So active listening, um, no bias. Uh, it it would be again like that individual. Let's say. I was referring to earlier who spoke up a bias might say a biased person might see that person as a bully. Mm-hmm. Um, but no bias means going, okay, well, what's really thinking about again, the curious what's really happening here mm-hmm. and you know, who are they? What do they want to achieve? Are we going to get there? And then finally, no cookie cutter solutions. I, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> the accountant in me wishes this could be like a tax return. I, I wish I could have a, you know, do this, do this. Yeah. This is how you do it. Um, I find in my meetings that only my first meeting, and, and I say this up front to families, is quite standard for every family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the only one where I do a lot of the talking because I do deliver a whole section on uh, communication, on strengthening mm-hmm. communication. And, and I do that because I found over time that... I always ended up giving that presentation, but I found later after I found worked with the family for a bit and kind of saw what was happening at the table. And I figured out to do it right away up front because if I do it later, it might seem that it's directed at someone in the family. And I don't, I don't want that to be the case at all. Uh, so that, and then we work on shared values and shared vision in the first. After that first meeting, I go away and think about you know, what the family said, who they are, again, what they're trying to achieve, and then start to map out um, the progression from there. But it's, you know, one meeting at a time, mm-hmm. about six months apart. So family has time to gather and think. And, uh, they, you know, they're usually doing this on top of already very busy lives. Yeah. Um, so no cookie cutter solutions. And then uh, family business advisory board. So I, my experience there has been, um, tr- wonderful and wonderful for the businesses. And, and I look to business leaders and, and uh, talk about they, one of the things they're doing typically from first generation to second generation is they're going from one decision maker to many decision makers. Mm-hmm. So taking in a lot of ideas. Uh, some family business leaders aren't ready to certainly take on a board and they don't want to give up control. And being an advisory board member, I also don't want to be a board director. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't want to make the decision, uh, but I can sit and 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 offer input and ideas. Yeah. 
um, and which is what an advisory board does. And it's a wonderful way for a family leader to start working with other people. And it's a one and from first to second generation, if if the second generation has earned a voice to be at the table, to have those members at the table. So they start to see, okay, my my mom or dad or my mom and dad take in the thoughts and ideas of other people. And this is how you work as a team. And this is how we're going to work with the team. And it's a wonderful training ground, not just for the ideas that go from the independent advisory board members to the family business leader, but it's also a wonderful role modeling experience for the um, family members that are, yes. are being prepared. I, again, I completely agree on, on all those points. I think um, the advisory board um, side of things is um, interesting because, I mean, we could probably have a whole episode um, on um, board structure and and advisory boards and, and things, but the the fact that it's advisory means that it's I don't want to say it's practicing how how to work with the board because it's not that it's not that simple, but it does mean you can do it and test it in a, a safer environment than just jumping straight into um, what can for some people be an, an intimidating um, arena. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, obviously, we we um, will provide a link on the show notes to um, to your book. Um, but in closing um, today's episode, the, the two questions I tend to ask um, all of our guests. So the first one is: If you had one tip to pass on to family businesses, what would it be? Have fun. Don't forget to have fun. Love it's it. really important. Yeah. That's fantastic. And uh -huh. how can audience find out more about you and um, the book other than obviously looking in the show notes to find the link? Oh, thank you so much, Russ. Uh, I have a website at buildyourfamilybank.com and I can be contacted there also. Fantastic. And are you on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, the, uh, no, whatever, Snapchat, whatever <laughs> they are these days? I, I'm a bit of a Luddite on, in, with regards to social media, but uh -huh. I do have an email at info at buildyourfamilybank.com and I get emails Brilliant. there. Okay, fantastic. And more than willing to answer any questions, obviously, yeah. Great. That for me, it's been a fantastic um, chat. Thank you very much for your time and for your insights. Um, I think our audience will gain an awful lot from that. Um, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Russ. It's been terrific. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fanbizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.